Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction, where authors of speculative science and fantasy fiction talk about their latest book, writing, publishing, and the world. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Everything That Gleams Is Not Gold edition. Mm-hmm. On the pod with me today is S. Chu Yi Lu. A is a writer of speculative fiction, an editor, and a translator. A runs Microverses, a hub for Tiny Narratives, and formerly edited the magazine Arsenica. In addition to writing poetry and short stories, A has also authored a novella in The Watchful City, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. A joins me now via, well, I'm on Skype, A is on the phone, and A is in Los Angeles, and I'm in New York, and it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. In the Watchful City is set in the city-state of Aura, and we learn about Aura through the point of view of Anima. Can we start with Air? Who is Anima? So the way I like to conceptualize it is if people have seen Minority Report or know about the story and there's the overseers of the city in the pool, that's kind of what Anima is. So Anima is human but has chosen to take this role of overseeing the city, which is primarily a role of surveillance, but also involves processing information, like looking through records for fraud and things like that. So for the most part, it's a protective role that is cut off from the society itself. Anima and the other nodes are in what's called the hub, so a a building that houses all of them. And they don't leave the hub. They have a special cord that connects to their neck. I call it the stem which supplies all of their nutrients and covers all their needs. So they're cloistered in this hub all the time. There seems to be an irony to me in that because Anima, on the one hand, is in a way wildly free because A can enter the consciousness and control the body of any animal in Aura, so can technically go anywhere at any time. And yet, as you've just described, at the same time, her own body is fastened by this stem to to a pod in 
what sounds like some kind of tank. It's described as an amniotic bath mm-hmm. in this weird mix of technology, but there's also plants. And I felt like you were exploring a, a tension there. On the one hand, A was free to explore and do things, but A was also physically tied down. So I wonder about the tension between constraint and freedom. Right. So basically, anima can project into the consciousness of various animals. And it's not possible to project into humans. And this way, anima is able to basically act as the eyes and ears of the city through these living creatures. You know, I was kind of following a lot of these cyberpunk tropes, but I wanted to, instead of using computers and artificial technology that humans have made, I wanted to tap into a more natural biological network because I feel that there's so much that exists in nature that we haven't quite learned how to replicate yet. So I kind of still liken it to, since it is a form of cyberpunk, I feel that this network is in some ways like the internet. You know, we're, we're sitting in front of a computer and physically our body is stationed in front of this machine, but through this network, we're able to explore so much. We're able to go to faraway lands, see through the eyes of someone else. So there's, there's that division that exists, but at the same time, it's kind of an aspect of understanding and knowledge to have this duality. There's this sense, because we're seeing aura through anima's perspective, this city-state, that in some ways, perhaps, it's benevolent and people's needs are taken care of, but then the things that A sees out in the world are sometimes disturbing. There's someone escaping who is, one presumes, committed some kind of crime. There's someone else who does an extreme act of self-harm. So it's sort of interesting trying to decipher what the reality is beyond Anima's perspective. Right. And I think that's part of the question that I wanted to explore with the idea of surveillance and supervision, really, is what it is. Because in in some ways it is benevolent, it's pragmatic. Um, I wanted to explore surveillance in a way that maybe wasn't quite utopic, but definitely doesn't feel dystopic. Because I feel like a lot of the um, narratives of surveillance that I've seen in science fiction, they tend to be presented as very dystopic. And of course, I, I think that could be a reality, and it is a reality in some applications of surveillance. But I also wanted to explore, you know, what might that look like if it's not so straightforwardly dystopic? Can it be used for good? Can there be aspects of surveillance that can be beneficial? So at the same time, what one person considers to be beneficial could be what they see as oppressive. So there's there's kind of that tension. There's these ideals that the city has about what its, its ethics are, what kind of relationships it wants to enforce. But, you know, there's always going to be people within that community who, who have different perspectives, who, for example, we open with a fugitive who hasn't actually, well, I, I never determined whether he's committed a crime or anything, but in the act of escaping the city, that is itself a trespass on the rules of the city. But what he's really doing is he's trying to reunite with someone who is from another country, one that has very tense relationships with Aura. So there's those ideals of, yeah, that character is getting his needs taken care of in the city, but he has these goals that he wants to pursue that are in conflict with the city at the same time. So I just kind of wanted to explore that, you know, all, all of us within any community, we have differences of perspective, differences in how we view the political realities we're in. So there's there's that tension between, is it benevolent? Are there people who still feel oppressed, suppressed? And, and I wanted to explore that. 
since you mentioned that Anima's networked existence echoes our current day experience with something like the internet, in a way, we're not always conscious of, we are being surveilled too. And we find it very convenient. I think a lot of people do when we can access the data we want, or we get ads. I mean, maybe people don't really like that. I don't know anyone who personally likes that, but supposedly people like getting personalized ads. Someone thinks so, because that's what all the cookies do on our computers. But in essence, it's happening now all the time. It's not just something that happens necessarily in what what we might describe when we claim we're living in a free-ish society. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen in an autocratic society. It's, it's Surveillance is is uh, just part of life these days. Right. And the inspiration in part for the story was in 2017, I got to go on a trip to Hangzhou in China with some Western science fiction writers and also some Chinese science fiction writers. And part of it was seeing some of the emerging technology that was being created. And one thing that just stood out so much to me was, so China's facial recognition technology, for better or worse, is very advanced. But the application that they were putting this technology toward was, if you go to a fast food restaurant, you can do this in the US too, and and you can order at a kiosk. But the difference is, in China, they were creating this technology of, you can use your face to pay with a digital wallet. So, you know, like, even if you forget your phone at home, even if you, you know, didn't bring your wallet or anything, you just look with your face and it's already connected to your account. So I, I feel like people in the U.S. might find that kind of like creepy or invasive. But like, like I said, you know, different communities, they have different ideas of surveillance and different ideas of privacy. So that was just so interesting to me to see this application of facial recognition. That is totally fascinating. I immediately thought of, well, if you get the right plastic surgery to look like a billionaire, maybe you could transfer their funds to your account. Right. At the same time, you know, as Apple iPhone, it already has that facial scanning technology to unlock your phone. So, you know, a, a a lot of this, it might seem science fictional when I write it in fiction, but the reality is I'm always drawing from what exists in our world. Right. Let's talk about the other main character, who is Vessel. The novella is structured as stories within a larger story, and Vessel is, in essence, the story keeper. Mm -hmm. C has an unusual octagonal trunk. There's a word you use to describe it, but if I try to say it, I'll mispronounce it, I'm sure. It's called a qi ji kong, which is actually the... I, I made a Chinese translation of wonder room, which is another term people have used for a cabinet of curiosities. Beautiful. So this trunk, this wonder room, opens in this delicious way. It it reveals shelf after shelf of all these objects, and each object represents a story. And Vessel invites Anima to pick any object. And when Anima does, Vessel tells the story associated with that object under the condition that at the end of the storytelling, Anima will give Z her own object and story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you first off about Vessel. Who who is Vessel? Vessel has an air of mystery about Zer. Yeah, so Vessel is I describe Vessel in the book as a psychopomp, so sort of caught in limbo between two worlds and the story reveals I think like I don't I don't know if this would be considered a spoiler. I think it's towards the beginning of the story that Vessel is caught between life and death and has this chance of having another shot at life if he collects all these mementos in the uh, TV Kong, and Animas is actually the last. 
So, so Vessel's role is to go around experiencing all these different lives, all these different stories, and maybe in the process learn something about their own life and how Lucy might do it differently if she gets another chance at it. And what drew you to this stories within a story structure? The work that I always cite as the influence on this is Italo Calvino's Invisible City. So that one isn't so much, you know, when we think of story within story, I think the most traditional touchstone is A Thousand and One Night. But Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities is a little different from that in that the stories within are not full-fledged stories. They're more just like drabbles, microfiction about various cities from the perspective of the traveler going into the city, um, describing what's distinct about it, what the customs are. And, you know, they're really tiny, just a couple hundred words long. But what I really loved about that book was the dialogue, because the two main characters are Marco Polo and Kubrick And Marco Polo is the traveler bringing news back and showing all these different parts of the world. So I really love that setup of these two characters having a dialogue and in the process influencing each other and how they think about things. So I, I didn't quite have like a very plot-driven story. I wanted it to be mostly centered on character change and in the process explore the secondary world I'm building through these stories within. And the stories, they, they do have their own narrative and overarching character arcs and stories, but I also really wanted to provide a sense of place for them, a sense of custom and and, you know, atmosphere, just to kind of work within that tradition and, and have more of like, I like to call it a fever dream book, you know, because Invisible Cities is, is like that. You read it as an experience and less so as a narrative. And I hope that that was something that comes across in this book as well. The stories within the story pose, in my mind, a sharp contrast to Anima's experience because, well, they're describing people, it seems as if from another time. Most of them are set in the past, and they seem to be telling stories of being an outsider, being in conflict with the prevailing culture. And I suppose, in a way, it feels very high stakes in each of those stories, whereas Anim has a certain tranquility, supposedly, it seems, because A has this role and function that connects air to the whole city. It turns out that A isn't so satisfied in the end, not to be a spoiler, but that seems to be what slowly is uncovered. But I just wonder what the dynamic, the contrast between this, the setting of this calm place and, and then the stories which have, you know, a lot of drama in them and high stakes. Yeah, so um, when developing the character Anima and kind of the environment that Anima was in, I drew a lot from my own experience, actually, because I grew up in a suburb that was very, like, it's very sheltered. Like, the high school was very focused on academic performance, and, you know, everyone's so, like, driven towards one success path of you go to college, and then you have a successful career and all of that. So the suburb I was growing up in was in many ways, like very calm, you know, of course, there there were troubles and all of that. But for the most part, it was just like a very calm experience. There's very little crime and things like that. But at the same time, it's like, I'm, I'm very aware that outside of this suburb, throughout the world, there's a lot more different kinds of conflicts that people encounter that, you know, I was privileged enough to not have to go through. So in some ways, it, it even though it's a very like secondary world, fantastical, it also reflects a lot of my experience because I, I learned a lot about the world through stories. 
and through displacing myself and trying to understand things from other people's perspective. And I think part of that curiosity was because I had such like a sheltered upbringing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of neo-pronouns and not necessarily in your story, although you do use them, but on your website, you have this fascinating list of speculative fiction works that use neo-pronouns. They are used more and more. And I wonder what you, if anything, see in, I don't know, is it a leadership role that speculative fiction is taking or is it reflecting the changes that are happening in society? I just wondered if there's anything to be said about the increasing use of, and if you agree that there's an increasing use of neo-pronouns in speculative fiction. And and I suppose for people who may not know the term, as I understand it and use it, it refers to pronouns that are not the conventional he, she, they. Well, I define a neo-pronoun as a third-person singular pronoun that is not um, he, she, they, or it. So basically an invented third-person singular pronoun and they're not as new as people might expect. You know, there have been instances of their use in like the 1950s, 60s. I do think that there is increasing use, but part of that is we lose a lot of historical reference. You know, there's there's probably stories that use them in the past but that we've lost to time or because people just weren't really keeping records of them. But I think that because there's a lot more awareness of non-binary gender these days, that people are exploring pronouns a lot more. Of course, you know, non-binary gender itself is not necessarily a new concept, but I think it's kind of entering the mainstream, at least in the West, in a more prominent way than it has previously. When it comes to speculative fiction, I really like neo-pronouns, both because I'm non-binary myself, I like to see how different people explore gender, but also because I'm a linguist. And from a linguist perspective, pronouns are usually considered a closed class when it comes to morphology, which traditionally was thought of as you don't really add words to this class. Like, you know, we make new nouns, new verbs all the time, but traditionally it was thought that you you don't really introduce new pronouns or it's very difficult to integrate them. And while people do often stumble initially, with practice, it becomes pretty easy to use them, actually. And that was part of why I didn't include any explanation in the book except in the audiobook because, you know, it's, it's more difficult to tell, like, what word is being said. I just added a preface. But in the print version, I didn't include any introduction because I wanted to just throw the reader in and be like, yeah, this might be kind of jarring. You'll find over time that, that it becomes more natural. It's just like a great way to explore different ideas and concepts and and just try something new you know that that may be like uncomfortable at first but i think with practice it becomes more more smooth of an experience maybe i should have said because maybe it was unclear as i was using anima's pronouns a air airs and then vessel has different pronouns i wonder which are uh c sir sirs is there in the choice that presumably anima and vessel have made which ultimately, I suppose, was your choice as their creator, in choosing those different pronouns, is there some meaning for us to take away other than, because what I'll, I'll tell you what I took away was just, it reminded me that these are individuals about whom I know nothing other than what you are telling me. Whereas if it had said he or she, I might have brought unconscious associations. I'm sure, surely would have pictures and things would have been drawn in my mind that I could not draw from a pronoun that I'm less familiar with or hardly ever see or use, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it, in doing so, you know, the, the actual choice of which pronouns they use, I mostly um, kind of made for aesthetic reasons, similar to how I choose my own pronouns. It's, it's just whatever I feel vibes with me. Of course, other people can use neo pronouns that draw from words of specific meaning, but but for me, these were these were just completely invented. And part of what I wanted to explore too is that you know, in in the world I'm in, people see me and they have their assumptions about gender. People will use like she/her pronouns for me. So when I came to this story, I kind of wanted to present this experience of what if you meet someone and you just have no assumption about their gender. So with anima, is anima is a very blank slate. I don't describe anima as feminine or masculine. I really barely describe anima's appearance. So it's it's kind of up to the reader what kind of image they project onto anima and what and what they're taking away from that. Whereas for vessel, vessel has a lot more feminine of an appearance. She wears dresses and they're very opulent. But you know, I wanted to also present that as an option of seeing like. Yeah, this character is very feminine coded, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the character identifies as a woman. So I just kind of wanted to bring some of my non-binary experience into this and see if I could position the reader in a way where they're questioning their own assumptions of gender that they're bringing to the table. There's one incredible detail about Vessel that you share. Something like Z has coffin-shaped nails. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking of all the, you know, the really elaborate manicures where people have their nails out long and, and coffin shape is a term that people use with manicures. And I just always thought that was really fascinating. Oh, see, I did not know that. I <laughs> thought it was really appropriately creepy for someone who's on the sort of in-between space between life and death. <laughs> you noted in an interview, I think it's in the current issue of Clark's World, mm-hmm. that when an editor selects work for publication, and you were speaking from your perspective as someone who has been an editor and is an editor, but you were talking about what editors look for and that a factor that can be more important than quality sometimes is really the editor's taste and that you gave the example of your own soft spot for experimental structures, and that's something maybe other editors might not have such a high tolerance for or interest in. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about your own attraction to experimenting, both in your writing and, since you're speaking as an editor, in other people's writing. What about experimental approaches appeals to you? I think it's really that you kind of experience what the boundaries of art are when you experiment and push push what people consider to be artwork and you know this doesn't just happen in prose you know at at a very formative time in my life in high school I was very interested in Dadaism as a art movement I was learning about it in European history and I had also stumbled across the book House of Leaves by Mark D. Danielewski and that one for people who haven't read it is very convoluted but also straightforward in some ways. It's three narratives bundled into one. And there's a author who is writing a thesis on a documentary that doesn't exist. And there is the person who has picked up this thesis and has started to experience nightmares because of reading it. And the documentary itself is about a house that is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So you have these three narratives combining, which is already a lot to begin with. And a lot of that is done through footnotes. And then as you progress through the book, it starts to really make use of the white space of the page. You know, the the actual words, the way they're printed, it starts to 
really devolves. There's some pages that just have one little box of words and other ones where the script is running backwards and things like that. And it mirrors the experience of the narrative of people who are exploring this house and like kind of slowly losing their minds over it. So, you know, at this very formative time in my life, I was experiencing a lot of artwork that kind of questioned what art means. And all, all through my life, I've kind of had this idea that we all know the same beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But at the same time, I think art is what people see as art. Like, some, you know, there's always the stories of like the garbage in the art gallery that people think is actual garbage, but it's the piece itself. But, you know, you kind of like question, okay, so then, then how do we draw the lines between what is art and what is not? But equally interesting to me is where is the limit of what we can parse as like art? Where is the limit on what can form itself into a narrative and what might just be like a bunch of scattered documents? And I just always find it so fascinating when people use these different structures and still tell a story, or it might not even be a story, just like create an emotion. You know, I love poetry too. And so I just, I just always love seeing these different explorations because it just fascinates me what people can do. There's just, there's just so much diversity in art and so many different ways of approaching it that I just love seeing these fringe cases because they make me really think about what art is and how we form narratives. You are also a translator, and I wondered how being a translator shapes your writing. Obviously, different languages, different cultures express things differently, so it gives you more ready access to seeing the world differently, and just the concept of translation is fascinating to me, and it seems like a wonderful skill to have. So does it inform your writing in some way? I think it's more that my writing informs my translation. Like I said, I have a background in linguistics, so I've always had this fascination with languages. And growing up in a multilingual community and having, you know, family that speaks languages other than English, translation has always kind of been part of my experience. So I think it's difficult for me to tease out how it influences my writing or not because it's been such a part of my life. But I think because of that, I, I have a lot of sensitivity toward the fact that different cultures do do things differently. And translating really makes me aware of that. But then in my stories, too, I'm often like aware of these characters who are coming into different contexts and having to learn how to translate things, whether literally through words or through understanding different cultural norms. And I think people have pointed that out in The Washington City, that there are a lot of stories about outsiders. And I think that's probably an element of it, because I'm exploring this secondary world that I'm building. And part of it is creating cultures. And sometimes I explore that through people within the culture and sometimes from people who are outside of it coming in. So there's a lot of that cultural contact and learning how to speak other people's languages, whether through actual language or through interaction. I just wanted to ask you quickly about microverses, which is something you edit. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of it before, but I loved what I read when I was preparing for the interview. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit about it. I mean, it, it's described on the site as a site for speculative flash fiction, poetry, and other tiny forms of storytelling. So there's one part, Octavos, where you could write poetry of eight lines and under, and then another section that's about tweet length work. Okay. So what's that about? another element of being experimental right is you know people know about all these sagas and like super long series and all of that but there's also the other end of the spectrum which is how small can a story be for it to become a story people always love to cite for sale baby shoes never worn and that has 
a lot of narrative behind it, even though it's just six, six words long. So part of what I did growing up, just as an exploration of writing, I, you know, I wrote a lot of fan fiction, and I still do at times. And part of that, back when fandom was centered more on live journals, was there were a lot of communities that would have Drabble contests, where a Drabble is a piece that is 100 words or under. And so all these people would be presenting their narratives and stories in this super compact form. And that really influenced me a lot because it showed me it's possible. So I just love seeing how people can really condense things because I find, especially with poetry, you can do so much with so little. And that just fascinates me. So I love seeing like what people can come up with because when I come across a narrative that is that short, and it blows my mind. There's no experience like it. You know, you just feel like, like Emily Dickinson says with poetry, like like the top of your head has been has been taken off. That's how you know when you've encountered something great. So I, I just love seeing people's creativity and, and how small a narrative can be. I just realized something. I had considered asking you a question about the number eight because Vessel's trunk is eight-sided. It's octagonal. And if I'm not mistaken, Anima is one of eight nodes in aura. Yeah. And then Octavos is poetry of eight lines and under. So then I realized that this was in my notes. <laughs> What's with you in the number eight? It's actually a lucky number in Chinese. The reason why eight is a lucky number in Chinese is it's pronounced ba, and the word for fortune is fa, so it sounds very similar. So you'll see all over in Chinese culture that the number eight pops up a lot. Like my mom chose my phone number and it has three eights in it. So, you know, it's less any kind of numerology or mysticism than more of like a little cultural Easter egg that I put in there. Beautiful. That's wonderful. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me. It's great. I've been talking to S. Chu Yi Lu, author of In the Watchful City, out from Tor.com, just the end of last month, August 2021. Thank you so much for listening. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. Stay well and read lots of books, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.